welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice. We are back with season three, and our first guest is Savitri Wilson, founder and CEO of Resilia. Savitri is a 2010 recipient of the Nobel Prize for Public Service, the Jefferson Award, and her work was featured in the U.S. Senate report to the White House on volunteerism in the U.S. under President Obama. Savitri's work and that of her clients has been featured in national publications such as USA Today, Time Magazine, and CNN. She serves as a voice for communities as a Forbes contributor and has amassed over 200,000 followers across social media. Headquartered in New Orleans with a second office in New York, Resilia is revolutionizing how nonprofits are created and maintained and how funders scale impact. In 2020, Savitri became one of the only 50 women in U.S. history to have raised over $10 million in venture funding. In September 2020, Savitri was named a rising star on the Forbes Cloud 100 list, and Resilia was named to Venture Beat's Top Startups to Watch, out for in 2019. And also in 2019, Savitri was named to Inc. Magazine's 100 Female Founders Building World-Changing Companies and to Pitch Book's 27 Leading Black Founders and Investors list. Prior to Resilia, she founded Solid Ground Innovations, LLC, a strategic communications agency, and authored Solid Ground, How I Built a Seven-Figure Company, at 22 with zero capital. Her second book, Resilient, How to Survive Anything and Build a Million Dollar Business with or Without Capital was released in April, 2021 and is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Hi folks, um, thank you so much for joining us for this lunchtime conversation. I'm super excited. Welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice. I'm Takima Robinson, founder and CEO of Converge. And this is a space we love to have uh, to invite uh, our friends who are doing this work to sort of share more. And I am really, really excited today to have Savitri Wilson, uh, founder and CEO of Resilia with us today. Welcome, Savitri. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to be in conversation with you. Awesome. Well, um, just sort of jumping into the conversation, I'd love um, just to introduce you have you tell the audience more about yourself. I know you grew up in Louisiana, went to LSU, but tell us a little bit about your journey. Um, and I ask all our folks this, what is one thing that folks may not know about you? So your story and then if you can give it one thing folks may not know about you. Yeah, so I grew up about 45 minutes outside of New Orleans. My mom's from New Orleans. My dad was from Hammond. So that's where I mostly grew up. Um, although we used to spend the majority of our time in New Orleans because it's hard to take anybody out of New Orleans <laughs> and put them in a more even rural environment like Hammond, Louisiana. Um, but I consider myself definitely um, a hybrid of both spaces. It's a very rural country area where my grandfather um, essentially was like a black farmer, right? And so I grew up with blackberry bushes and fig trees and hogs and cows. And it's like a modern compound. My grandfather was half Native American, and he and his 11 siblings were left um, um, and of his land, he never sold like his siblings did. And instead, he divided them up between 
seen his children. So nine pops uh, and my mother and my grandmother was in the middle. So I grew up um, really at the center of my entire family being around me in this very country-like feeling uh, environment in Hammond, Louisiana. Um, I walked to LSU for undergrad and I originally majored in mass communication journalism and um, also dual majored in history. And so I actually wanted to be a historical uh, film. I want to go into uh, film documentary and actually focus on history and to kind of like merge those two passions. Obviously, I did not have because I don't do any of that. <laughs> uh, and, and when I was 22, roughly about six months after my mother passed away, I started my first business, Solid Ground Innovations. Um, which was a strategic communications agency that heavily focused on supporting nonprofits, so nonprofit management. But we had this agency that also focused on communication. Um, as that business began to grow, I started to realize that, man, here's this thing, technology over here looming um, in the background and literally disrupting everything that I do. And I decided to start thinking about ways that I could utilize technology to uh, innovate and evolve the space that I was in, working with nonprofits and um, funders and grant makers. And that gave rise to my second business, Resilia. And so Resilia is a tech platform working across a double-sided market. On one side, we support um, nonprofits, essentially bringing on, bringing them like this on-demand technical assistance. Um, and on the other side, we support funders, primarily managing their day-to-day -day operations and aligning to their grantees. And so, you know, my life from like this little young form girl to now, um, you know, building a tech company where we have, I guess almost like 40 people on our team. It's kind of crazy how much we've grown over the past uh, few years. We raised about 11 million in venture capital, but that's a little bit about me. Something that people don't know is that um, I'm a musician and everyone in my family is a musician and you're kind of black sheep if you don't play an instrument in my family. <laughs> wow, I did not know that as many times that we've hung out. And so what instrument do you play? Oh, with, so clarinet, um, violin, I played, well, my brother introduced me to the guitar. I'm not as good as him. So I was I always say I can play the guitar, but I'm not a guitar player because he can play any string instrument that exists out there. But if it's a woodwind, if it's a key, that's me all day. Wow. All right. All right. So now I'm even impressed even more. All right. So let's get into this about nonprofits and the history of nonprofits. And then I want to talk more about the company and the book. That's where I really want to get to. So because this is the Converge for Change Business of Social Justice, we talk a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex, the nonprofit sector, philanthropy, et cetera, especially in the, this moment racial reckoning in the country. Um, mm -hmm. So we know that the sort of uh, modern day 501c3 was created in 1969, um, and which is very interesting, right? Because it's the same year the Civil Rights Act, et cetera, was signed. And that a lot of what prompted the United States to create this tax exemption was what was happening in terms of civil rights in the Vietnam War. But even the precursor to that was all the social programs created around the depression and the formation of, of philanthropy in that space. So can you talk a little bit about, um, I think I was sharing with you as we were getting ready, this phrase, the revolution will not be funded. And it always seems really interesting to me, the timing of the creation of this 501c3. So what are your thoughts on that history 
of nonprofits? And what do you think are the opportunities that you see um, yeah. through the work that you do and even some of the limitations? So the idea that the revolution will not be funded before we got on here, we were just talking about um, some of the think pieces around that concept. And I'm definitely, you know, you could probably put me in the the uh, revolution will not be televised box of people who uh, has definitely always been very, how do we um, address uh, systemic racism? Um, how do we essentially um, close the gap that we see with the wealth disparity? And, and I think about how I got in technology and what we see with the wealth gap, when people say, oh, Black and uh, Latinx uh, communities will be the poorest they've ever been in the next 20 years, I feel that technology is playing a role in that divide, right? Yeah. And it's about access and who has access to things. And so when we think about the nonprofit and tech organizations when it was formed and the ways over those decades and how exemption has been used, right? When we think about the NRA, when we think about the NFL Association, which one time had an exemption. So in many ways, it was another way that people also utilize their influence and power to many ways like get over on the system while others, particularly those from our communities were creating nonprofits to actually give back to the community. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that in terms of how particularly black and brown people are always trying to take all their resources, all their energy and push it back into community without even understanding. Right. Like what the bigger ecosystem around them is doing and how necessarily it's not even working like in their favor. Right. Um, and when I think about like the work that we're doing um, at Resilia, it's like, how do we utilize technology to actually um, go against that? And I do think that in 2020, philanthropy, a lot of organizations had this reckoning of sorts of this very antiquated, dated, very white way of doing things. Uh, when we look at who receives the most funding, um, where that money goes to, and the organizations uh, that have the majority of the founders organizations are not people of color. And then they've graduated, many of them have graduated from Ivy League schools, right? And so this idea that money is being circled in the same hands, you know, continuously for decades and decades. And, you know, in that light, they've also found ways to get tax breaks and so, you know, all those other things to fund such and such as um, pet project around education, you know, to, to save black and brown kids um, with a very creative way of doing things. <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts, you know, we go in a lot of different directions when it comes to, when we think back across the past decades and we think like philanthropy and in many ways, 2020 is opportunity, not just in philanthropy, but in justice for this idea of like restorative yeah. justice, right? And so what are we going to do moving forward? Yeah. What, what's philanthropy going to do to be more of an equalizer, mm -hmm. which is something that it preaches, but in actuality, it's like, where does power sit, right? right. And I think that that dynamic is important. Um, when I think about philanthropy from the idea of, and I mentioned this earlier, you can't 
always bite the hand that feeds you, right? And so nonprofits oftentimes being in this position where they're constantly feel like they're competing against each other for scraps and there's not enough to go around when we know very well that there is enough to go around. There's enough wealth to go around. But is that mentality, right? This kingmaker mentality that we need to like break through. And as we say, instead like democratize democratize philanthropy and make it more accessible to everyone and the benefits of what it's supposed to do more accessible to everyone. And so, you know, I'm going to just leave it there. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think there's an emerging a conversation that is about holding that space accountable um, because there is a benefit that they're receiving from a 501c3 status, which is the ability to shelter funds from taxation, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's got to be, I think, an evolving conversation from whence we started, you know, codifying this in law and creating tax exemptions, et cetera, and just a real accountability. around how those dollars are being unlocked. You know, right now the spend out rate is still what, 7%? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're talking about 93% um, of the wealth is still sitting in, in coffers, which amazes me, particularly in the middle of, a, of the panoramic, as I like to call it. Right. Um, Girl likes to call it. And so just a really interesting moment, um, especially uh, with you inside the space, right? Um, to really, I think, interrogate some of the founding um, ideas and possibly rethink them. So in terms of you know what's the work of Brasilia, we talk a little bit more about what you all do and how you all support nonprofits. Um, yes. So we look at Brasilia as a two-sided market. Um, on one side, we've always supported nonprofits where these are nonprofits who are just getting started and they're going through the 501c3, c4 process or becoming charter schools and actually getting their exemption to their actual existence, right? And so if you're a nonprofit organization and you just started or maybe you've been around for a long time, what we've done is, for me, years ago, I was a consultant for nonprofits and I used to go out and I used to help nonprofits um, in many ways. So we used to act as the back office in lieu of full-time employees. We used to do webinars on demand. We used to do trainings. Um, We used to help uh, organizations understand like their financial budget. So instead of us going out and trying to scale ourselves, we are essentially productizing our services and delivering it through a software solution. Um, And so that's one side of our platform. Um, the other side is, again, the, me thinking back to what I was doing as a consultant and how I could productize this service and deliver through a software solution. So Resilia's funder platform, um, everything from evaluations. And so we work up with partners, whether that's Oxfam or uh, United Ways across the U.S. Um, to streamline their evaluations across their programs um, to also provide that direct technical assistance, right? And so we're providing that on one side of the platform. Now funders can send that directly to um, the organizations and grantees that they're funding as well from their platform. And we always say like the idea of like capturing data, measuring impact with our system, because it's a double-sided platform, we're able to like measure impact over time. And Mm -hmm. so that when organizations are reporting and most organizations are like, oh, here we go getting this report, we gotta do this report, you know, (laughs) Quarterly, yearly. Nobody likes to do a report. No one likes to report. <laughs> Nobody likes the reports. But we're able to 
send notifications, automate information where we're extracting information over time. So by the time you need to actually do a report, the information has already been aggregated and it's easily accessible by you, whether that's the push out to via your MailChimp, whether that's to send in a uh, PDF um, to your funder. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to not only streamline but drastically reduce the time that it takes on a lot of day-to-day -day operations between the funder and the nonprofit, um, as well as support just their capacity overall. Awesome. So given that work, what are some of the trends? I mean, given the panoramic, I know you started this work after Katrina and the nonprofit uh, community has grown tremendously, particularly in Louisiana in response, but also around, around the nation. What are some of the trends you're seeing in the sector, um, whether that be sort of topics and themes that people are working on and digging into, um, or sort of like the uh, sort of practices of nonprofits that you're seeing as trends? Yeah, you know, I think that most people are like, oh, it's future. We don't need any more nonprofits, right? And I generally align with thinking like, yeah, you're probably right. We probably don't need any new nonprofits unless they have a very specific focus and they're actually um, seeking to execute something that is not an existing resource. But what I also tell people is that sometimes people start nonprofits because they look around them and they're like, the work is it? They don't feel like the work is getting done. Mm -hmm. But I'm always conscious of people understanding like the full gravity of what it means to start a nonprofit and to have, um, you know, the resources and things in place to actually um, support their community or the objective of why they even started to begin with. Um, when we think about the nonprofit space in the past even decade, I always say I don't think our product could exist it 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, as you probably well know, our space is definitely when it comes to technology, like adverse to technology. Uh, I was like, what, what do you want me to do? No, 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 no. You just made me flashback and trigger moment, like when I was a program officer trying to use <laughs> software. I was, I like, I was like, no. Print no, it. I can do it. <laughs> uh, but 2020, I think 2020 made people realize maybe we need to give this technology thing and this digital new world a try and maybe try new things. So I think 2020 definitely um, just exacerbated the process of people being more open to adopting new technology. But also technology really hadn't been created with nonprofits in mind. Um, more so funders in mind, if anything, Tech for Good has focused around the grant maker and the funder and their deeds and what they could get from their grantees, which is another reason why nonprofits are averse to technology, because they see it as like, oh, here comes this funder trying to push something down on me that's just going to soak up time. Tell that truth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so it's like, how do we use technology to recenter the nonprofit? And when we think about what happened in 2020 around social justice, which is a huge, you know, window of giving now that we've seen, um, funders are like, okay, we need to rethink the way we've been doing things. We also probably need to rethink the way we have um, asked for applications, done calls for proposals, um, these very long and uh, dated type of responses that we need. Um, and also how do we help our nonprofits more? Right. And so 10 years ago, 15 years ago, capacity building, who's spending money on that? Right. It was like you have to like pull people's teeth out to get them to understand that organizations needed capacity support and they needed these other resources.
services to help support their um, benefits. And which now fast forward to today, people are understanding like, yeah, you know, maybe we can't put such a restrictive request on the nonprofits that we're funding. And so I do feel like people are trying to figure out what is the correct course of action. Um, and then I also believe that generally more entrepreneurial um, social innovators, right, are now wanting to create nonprofits and figure out other methods of sustainable revenue for the organizations that they're creating. Um, and we know this is like evident because when you look at colleges and universities, I don't think when I was at LSU, they'd have a nonprofit management concentration in anything. If you go to Tulane, they have a whole social innovation um, department now, right? right. You go to, uh, you can get an MBA with a nonprofit management um, concentration. And so with that, I think that we're just also developing new types of nonprofit leaders. Absolutely. And because these nonprofit leaders are more knowledgeable about what it takes and what, um, the expectations are and the opportunities to raise capital are a lot different, right? You could see more, more, more is visible to you, right? For a better understanding. And so I actually feel that the nonprofit sector as we move forward will be stronger and hopefully more independent. Mm, that's really interesting. I love that last piece about more independent. I thought about, um, you know, Chan Zuckerberg is an LLC and not a 501c3, right? I think a really interesting um, option, a really interesting a thought. Um, and I don't really have an opinion LLC versus 501c3, but I do think it's a really interesting conversation that folks are not defaulting to a model, but really thinking through the challenges and the limitations of the model based on what it is that they want to do, right? Um, and I love what you're bringing up about also the way in which philanthropy is being democratized and creating a disruption inside of the relationship, the historical relationship between nonprofits um, and philanthropy. And as a former Echoing Green fellow, I have to say shout out to the social innovators out there. Yes. <laughs> I've been on that since 2000. Yes. I've been on social innovation for a minute. And um, a great report that was released in May of last year that basically was like defining like why um, nonprofits founded by people of color, right, don't get funding. And and one of the things that resonates a lot with me from that report is that oftentimes, even if they get to the table, they're not responding the way that funders want to receive information, right? right? So there's so many different blocks. <laughs> it's like, can't get to the table, don't have the network, don't have this. And then once we get there and we respond, it's not the way funders want to receive or see information. So yeah, definitely a great report. Everyone. Well, I'm going to transition a little bit because I am so proud of you for writing this book. Um, and I would love to hear more about the book. Um, will you share a little bit about Resilience and, and your journey to sort of write it? I believe you might have wrote it someplace that I'm familiar with. Um, yeah. <laughs> and of it because I underestimated that. <laughs> Well, I'd love to hear more about the book um, because the other part of this show is really sort of getting to know folks um, who are out there doing this work. Um, you know, we're uh, we're human beings, right? Like who are the folk, the faces um, and the lives behind the work? So will you share a little bit about what inspired you to write Resilient? So what inspired me to write it um, was a few things, but 
I often receive emails, DMs, messages from like entrepreneurs and other founders trying to figure out um, how I raise capital, how I navigate it, whether that was as a black woman, as a female founder, as a founder from the South, right? So all these different elements <laughs> that they're like, man, how did you do that? Or how did you meet that person? And so I really wanted to not only tell my uh, founder journey up until this point, but also like be very like transparent and real about how hard and difficult it was. And like the moments where I was like, okay, maybe this isn't for me, you know, <laughs> being in the airport and like having a whole little breakdown, like, you know what, I'm about to miss this flight. I'm supposed to go speak to the best, just throw it all away. I'm done, you know? And so I had those moments throughout and also moments where I was like, there's just no possible way I'm going to be able to get to like this next goal of mine. Um, and this felt very challenged, particularly of like where I was, um, you know, trying to raise capital where I felt I didn't have the network. And um, so I do feel like resilient is both um, inspirational, I will hope, and then also like a how-to guide, right? Like this is the documents I use. This is the um, the legal instrument that I use. Uh, these are literally the, the emails that I sent, right? Um, and so... I hope that people will find if they're also going down this journey or they know someone that is a entrepreneur or someone that's seeking to be an entrepreneur, that if I can do it, you most certainly can do it. Awesome. Well, that's a message we need to hear. And I personally needed to hear that as an entrepreneur, there are those days <laughs> when you are like, and uh, for what? <laughs> right. And I appreciate too because you know I don't know if nonprofit leaders see themselves as entrepreneurs, but if you have founded a nonprofit, you are absolutely an entrepreneur. You are someone who is creating something from nothing. And so, um, I know there's a lot in this book for for all of us, whether we come from the for profit or nonprofit sector. Yeah. Um, well, I we always have some rapid fire questions at the end of our, our interview. We're getting towards the end. And um, I'd love to ask you, there are three. And so I'd love to hear the first thing that comes to mind when I ask the question. All right. So the first is, what is justice? Oh, my gosh. So justice for me is the ability of individuals who generally um, are disproportionately out of the system receiving the due credit and equality and equity that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And this could be and I'm using like they but it could be anything right justice for something of people that have been generally wrong. Absolutely. What is freedom? Oh, so first thing that came to mind was being able to be independent and going back to, to that. So freedom for me is definitely having um, the ability to be independent. And then the last thing is, what is one thing you cannot live without? I'm sure there are many, but what is one thing you can't live without? Oh my gosh, probably, I know it's horrible, but probably my phone, y'all, it's horrible. <laughs> it's like my computer, it's my way to get connected to my, my family. So. <laughs> I, I think you told the truth, folks like love. Like, <laughs> I get right over love and all that, I'm like my phone. <laughs> um, so 
Rosavici, thank you so very, very much for joining us. This was like a really great conversation. I know you and I have been trying to connect for a while. I am super, super proud of you. Cannot wait to get my t-shirt so I, my resilient t-shirt so I can be a micro influencer and share this amazing work that you've done. We are always proud of you. We are always cheering you on. Um, and just thank you for all the roles that you play, not just as a founder, an author, um, a speaker, but folks should know that you are out there doing this work all the time um, because that is who you are. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and thank you to everybody in the audience. Um, we'll be putting this up as a podcast um, and so look out for that soon. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Bye everyone. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really right now. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors, and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.